The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Brobeck. And this is Mr. Quinn. We are back to the mysterious Mr. Quinn. It's been a little while. It's time to get spooky. This episode is entitled The Sign in the Sky. It was first published in the UK in the Grand Magazine in July 1925. And then, of course, in the Mysterious Mr. Quinn collection in 1930. Catherine Brobeck, who is our victim? Well, it is Lady Vivian Barnaby, which is a pretty good name. And uh, she's been shot to death at nearly point-blank range, apparently by her paramour, Martin Wilde. Well, uh, not surprisingly, our first suspect is Mr. Martin Wilde, who Vivian had tried to have an affair with. And he is a local farmer of means, and he has been tried and convicted of this crime. Right. We wouldn't have a story if that was the only suspect. So we have some more, and one of them (laughs) is Sir George Barnaby, who's Vivian's husband, but he has an alibi. So he has never been counted, but in theory, he could have discovered the affair. Then we have Miss Sylvia Dale, who is Martin Wilde's girlfriend and the daughter of the local doctor. She also, in theory, could have discovered the affair and would have been very upset about it. Right. And then we also, I suppose, have the servants, um, of which there are quite a number. They were all in the house at the same time that Vivian was murdered. So there's not necessarily a reason for them to have done it, but, you know, we don't necessarily also know that. So we can count them in. Never underestimate the help. Never. Let's talk about the world as it appears to be. And I actually, I should have mentioned that the story was technically first published one month earlier in 1925 in the U.S. in The Police Magazine, which is appropriate given how we open up our story here because Mr. Satterthwaite is sitting in the Old Bailey and he really seems to have a lot of time on his hands. Mm-hmm. As we as we know, he has a great deal of leisure. He is a man of means and he goes where the wind may take him. And apparently it's taken him to the Old Bailey where he is a looker on, a looky loo. I know. It's basically, it's basically like he doesn't have headline news. So <laughs> he can't just like... He's basically watching, if, he, if this were present day, he'd be watching, he'd be watching Nancy Grace. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he knew she no. was dead, all right. Now, tell you how he knew because he put the bullet in her (laughs) he'd be watching like depending on his political persuasion either fox news or msnbc or what have you like he he would just be imbibing it all it's probably better for mr satterthwaite that he existed in the 20th century as opposed to the 21st right he um, he actually physically has to go down to the old bailey to follow the trial he's got to get the blood pumping through his dry, <laughs> desiccated, little, right. old, rich man body. Yeah, so he is there following the trial of Martin Wilde, an affluent farmer who's been accused of killing Lady Barnaby, with whom he was having a tryst. By all accounts, he had been trying to break things off with her, and she'd been more or less stalking him. So what am I supposed to do? You won't answer my calls. You change your number. I mean, I'm not going to be ignored, Dan. 
he went to her home at Deering Hill per her request in order to talk to her, and he had brought his rifle to this meeting. Shortly thereafter, Lady Barnaby is shot at point-blank range by that exact rifle. Wilde says, those are the facts, but I didn't do it. Nevertheless, he has been tried, and he has now been convicted. And we open up on the jury instructions coming from the judge and then finding out that the jury has in very short amount of time. Right. Yeah. They took, they took very little time to deliberate on this. Yeah. But it's a rather dramatic opening, especially for a mysterious Mr. Quinn story, which is usually a little bit more dreamy, airy, mm-hmm. what have you. Right. I mean, the last one found Mr. Satterthwaite on like a country ride and like broken like down a flat car. tire. Yeah. yeah a flat yeah. tire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is a very much a criminal hearing. Are we in witness for the prosecution here? <laughs> right. Seriously. <laughs> we're, we're really not. <laughs> really not. Well, or Sad Cypress, our last novel. True. That's true. But no, we are in fact not in either of those. And um, Satterthwaite, despite the fact that this seems to be a hobby of his to go watch murder trials, he's very distressed over this because he has a passing familiarity with both Sir George and sort of with young Wilde. At least he knows who he is. And he actually can't fathom that Wilde committed a murder like this. So, you know, he has left this trial perturbed. And mulling it over, he heads to his favorite pricey restaurant. Sigh. <laughs> I know. It's called, um, not at all on the nose, it's called Arlecchino. <laughs> hmm. Is that the Italian word for Harlequin? It just might be. I literally wrote, by the way, I underlined Arlecchino the first time it's in here and wrote, ugh. (laughs) (laughs) It's a little bit like, do better, Agatha. (laughs) (laughs) Try a little harder. (laughs) Just a little harder. Although, you know, in fairness, I could see a Soho restaurant named Arlecchino. Totally. So he goes after the trial and he goes to go sit in his favorite secluded corner table. And of course, he goes there and, oh my gosh, Kemper. Jeez, I wonder who is already seated at his favorite corner table in the restaurant named Arlecchino. It might be Mr. Quinn, but I I would like to actually pull the lines um, here because we get my first of the two elements in every one of these stories, the physical description of Mr. Harley Quinn. Right. Owing to the twilight before mentioned, it was not until he was quite close to it that he saw it was already occupied by a tall, dark man who sat with his face in shadow and with a play of color from a stained window turning his sober garb into a kind of riotous motley. (laughs) (laughs) Motley colors like Harlequin. Could this be Mr. Harley Quinn? Just to get the other one out, because you got to punch in and punch out for both of these elements in a Harley Quinn story is Mr. Satterthwaite whining about his sedentary existence. And it's on the exact same page where Mr. Satterthwaite says his role was that of the looker on and he knew it. But sometimes when in the company of Mr. Quinn, he had the illusion of being an actor and the principal actor at that. Check and check. We can move on now. You know what? I I just want to point out, I actually kind of like these stories at this point. I do too. I actually live revel in them. I love them. So, I mean, we are doing, we're making fun of them out of affection. A hundred percent. But we are making fun of them. (laughs) We are because, (laughs) I mean, come now. Oh, Agatha. All we need is a tanned face. Unfortunately, I don't think we ever get it. No. Uh, Satterthwaite uses this opportunity to catch Mr. Quinn up on the trial. Mr. Quinn has like 
some sense of what's going on, but he basically allows Satterthwaite to just kind of ramble on about it. And Satterthwaite says, you know, he's really uncomfortable with the verdict. He understands why the jury came back the way that they did, and he doesn't have another solution. But despite all the evidence, something seems really wrong, and he can't quite put his finger on it. And one of the things that he points out is that, you know, the servants all testified, but there was one servant who had not been able to testify because she had gone immediately after the murder to Canada. Mr. Quinn, as is his wont, we've seen this before, he suggests that perhaps Satterthwaite is distressed because he knows that something really is off in the trial, and he suggests that they go over the facts again and try to parse out what might be bothering Satterthwaite. Neither man has a sense, uh, at least from the get-go, of what it could be because the case is pretty clear-cut. This is the general gist of these Mr. Quinn stories. Let's go over something that already happened and that has already been seemingly adjudicated and solved and see if we can't use the passage of time to our benefit. Correct. So the facts are this. Deering Hill is a suburb built around golf courses with all mod cons and regular train service to London. Everyone keeps a routine. Everyone can attest to the times. The house is kept immaculately. The clocks are always wound on time by Sir George on Fridays. Meals are served on a schedule, etc., Sir George himself was away at a bridge night with some friends, and he was summoned home uh, when the shots were fired. The witnesses all heard the shot. They all attested to the same time. Wilde had left only moments before, and of course it was Wilde's gun. And on top of that, someone had cut the phone lines. Hmm. But with Mr. Quinn's poking, catalyst that he is, Satterthwaite begins to fixate on Louise Bullard, the missing maid who had immediately gone to Canada. He accuses Mr. Quinn of basically trying to incept Louise into his mind just to right. get him to, to fix it. Second, second episode in a row where we've... Uh... <laughs> yeah, and who knew? Inception and Agatha Christie, so many connections. But, you know, Satterthwaite really is the one fixating on her, and he just doesn't understand why she didn't testify and why she had to leave so quickly for Canada. And he becomes convinced that what Mr. Quinn is really saying is that he should go to Canada and track down Louise, and there's a lot of sputtering and, oh, I, I can't do that, that's crazy, and we know where this is going. Mr. Satterthwaite is off to Canada. Right. So he leaves the restaurant. He makes some calls to the household. He finds out that no one has been in contact with her, but that they believe she'd gone to Banff. So he books a ticket for a sea voyage to Canada, which he's actually kind of excited about because he normally, and this is so snobby, he normally only goes to the Riviera, Le Touquet, Deauville, and Scotland. Right, that's his circuit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's yeah, his little snob yeah, circuit he, for the he year. Calls, he calls it a circuit, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I just want to point this out because it is really glossed over in this story. If he took that long sea voyage to Canada, he presumably took a real long train ride across most of Canada because for our uh, listeners who are maybe not familiar with the geography of our Canadian neighbors to the north, Banff is all the way in Alberta in western Canada um, in the mountains. Yeah. So presumably Mr. Satterthwaite had to have spent, you know, two weeks probably to get there. I guess, fair enough, as we previously mentioned, our man has way too much time on his hands. 
Yeah, I feel like it's glossed over because it's easy to imagine Mr. Satterthwaite on the transatlantic steamer going to Canada's east coast. But then this would probably was a pretty utilitarian train ride across continental Canada. Just doesn't right. seem as Mr. Satterthwaite-ish. I'm not saying it couldn't be a lovely ride, Canadian listeners. <laughs> no, it's not even mentioned, though. That's the weirdest part of it. It's like, I know it's a weird knit to pick, but I just read this story and was like, do you have any idea how far Alberta is from the east coast of Canada? Right, like why Banff then? Why couldn't she have been in Nova Scotia? Yeah, Montreal or something. Right, I mean, like, right. Even like Toronto. Like, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's bizarre. But hey, to Banff he goes and once he arrives, he finds Louisa in a really short amount of time because there's only one fancy hotel there and she's employed there. Not only is she employed there, but she's employed at a remarkably high wage that she accepted right. at face value. And she's more than happy to talk to him. It's all quite easy once he actually gets there. Right, because, you know, if there's only one massive hotel, probably what Christie's referring to is that there is a historic hotel in Banff that I think is now a Fairmont. Maybe even Queen Elizabeth visited there at some point. It's, you know, a famous, famous hotel there. Maybe she felt the need for Mr. Satterthwaite to have to go to a place that would have had only one such famous expensive hotel. There wouldn't be a famous hotel in somewhere super remote that was closer to the eastern shore of Canada. And then he couldn't go to a major city in Canada because he never would have been able to find her. I suppose it makes sense. It's just it's it's just a really odd choice. Yeah. So Louisa tells Satterthwaite up front, well, she thought that Wilde was a nice young gentleman gone wrong, quote unquote. She knows he must have done it because there was an omen. She was changing her clothes in her room and she was looking out the window and she saw the smoke from the train had risen into the sky in the shape of a hand reaching for something. And at that very moment, she heard the gunshot. And on top of it, it was Friday the 13th. Right. Satterthwaite is like, uh, okay, he's he's disappointed. He doesn't really see his way through this at this point. That information doesn't help him. So he heads back to London. So I guess cut to another month later. <laughs> right. I mean, gosh, like think about how long this trip must have taken him. But he does have all the leisure time in the world. So he, he goes back to Arlecchino. Well, you know who doesn't, though, is Mr. Wilde, who is now like going to be True. hanged. True. So uh, Mr. Satterthwaite goes back to Arlecchino looking for Mr. Quinn to tell him that his entire trip hasn't gone very well. He hasn't gotten any more information. And of course, Mr. Quinn is there. Miracle of miracles on that night. And we then learn about the world as it actually is, because we've got a very classic Christie clue here that is um, structuring this miniature puzzle mystery. What is it, Catherine? It's time. And we've come across this time and time again. If a Christie story repeatedly mentions times, it's exactly the same kind of clue to pay attention to as a floor plan or a reprinted scrap of paper or saying that a character is an actor. You have to pay attention. And even more significantly, I think here, we get it in three different ways. We have repeat mentions of the regularity of the train schedule to London. We have mentions of the time of the murder itself, and we have the mentions of Sir George's obsession with winding the clocks. So there's a very easy deduction here, and it's that the times are wrong. It's because there's no possible way that the story fixates on time this much without it being the critical clue. So the only question then is, how are what appear to be fixed times inaccurate? 
Right. And there's a corollary clue number two here, supplementing clue number one, that is to be wary of extremely firm alibis. And there's a lot made of Sir George's just airtight alibi here. It's backed up by a number of people, and he's never at any point a suspect. And yet, if we look at the situation here, we know that there's some sort of hanky-panky going on between a married woman and an unmarried man. And we also have this married man here among our list of suspects who is at least in the area and very much could have been right. involved in this. So we, we should be very suspicious of him just based on the psychology of the situation. And motive, because what motive did Wild have to actually, I mean, other than the fact that she was fatal attractioning him. He tried. Because he and I feel the same way about each other. It's actually a very weak motive when you think about it, especially given how obvious it would have been to pin it on him. Right. So um, we should be looking a lot more closely at Sir George. Catherine? What's happening here? So Mr. Satterthwaite is, of course, disappointed by this. <laughs> Apparently, like... Failed three-month-long trip. <laughs> I know. Trip to Banff. He's like, I lost three toes on the train <laughs> through, like, the frozen tundra. The tundra. <laughs> it took us three weeks to get across the frozen <laughs> north. By the way... I say this as someone who has been in Canada multiple times in the last year. Lots of love to our Canadian neighbors. Absolutely. But he, you know, he has spent all this energy and what he got was he thinks sort of nothing, right? So Mr. Quinn asks him why he would be so disappointed when he has in fact been told something of great value by Louisa Bullard. And Mr. Quinn kind of uses like a Socratic method <laughs> To get Satterthwaite to essentially come to answers. Which is often how Mr. Quinn converses with Mr. Satterthwaite. It's like he's drawing out the revelations that were lying inside Mr. Satterthwaite all along. Absolutely. So so what are what are some of the questions and answers? All right. So why would Louisa be immediately given a job in distant Banff and told to not contact the rest of the household staff? Clearly, someone wanted to remove her from England and from everything surrounding the trial so that she couldn't give evidence at the trial. Why? What is it of value that Louisa has? She seems like a superstitious and slightly dim maid, and she doesn't seem to have seen anything, right? Well, not necessarily right. right. She absolutely did see something, and she told superstitiously her employer all about it. She said that she saw the sign in the sky, that hand made out of smoke coming from the train. And why would that matter? Well, the trains run like clockwork, pun intended here, and they marked the time of the gunshot because she saw the smoke from the train that was passing by. Again, why would this matter? Well, because the clocks themselves have to be wound by a human hand, which is always, every week, the hand of Sir George. And it's a Friday, because if we all remember, it's Friday the 13th, which means that he had just wound them that morning. What can we deduce from this? Well, we can deduce that he deliberately misset the time on every single clock in the house. And on top of it, he disconnected the phone line. In other words, Louisa saw the perfectly punctual train at the exact right time, which was not 
the time on the clocks in the house that everyone else testified to, and which immediately means that Sir George does not have an alibi. And the phones being disconnected are because obviously people would have jumped on the phone immediately after discovering this dead body, and that would have alerted people outside of the house who weren't going by the clocks inside the house as to the time that this happened, and it would have also been the proper time. This is very much a 20th century... A pre-iPhone satellite satellite updated clock. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan, I have to say, of the smartphone and what it's, it's been doing in some ways to our culture, but you know what? The iPhone would have solved this one because there's no way anyone's controlling that from uh, a human hand inside of a house. No, maybe a human hand inside of Apple. That <laughs> 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 you could have you could have that be the twist on a new version. Steve Jobs of this. did it. <laughs> maybe Mr. Harley Quinn is Steve Jobs. Hmm, intriguing. Is it? Is it really intriguing? All right. Well, how exactly did this happen? Let's tease this out a little bit. Martin Wilde has been in distress about this argument with Lady Vivian. He doesn't actually want her. He wants Sylvia, who he's in love with, and he kind of has this, like, fling with Lady Vivian, and then she goes, you know, again, full fatal attraction on him. I don't know what you're up to. But I'm going to tell you it's going to stop right now. No, it's not going to stop. It's going to go on and on. So he's gone to the house because she's insisted. And he had been out beforehand, so he had his rifle on him. And he had left it outside. And, you know, he is so distressed by the conversation with her that essentially he just rushes home. He leaves the rifle outside. There is a plot hole in this, and we could talk about it in a second, but Sir George has essentially planned much of this when he realizes that he was being cuckolded. And when he comes home, he takes the rifle and he shot his wife point blank in the head. And then he put the gun back. Then he went back outside so that he was coming home when the servants have rushed to inform both him and the local police that his wife has been murdered. You know, the only flaw in this plan was that Louisa Bullard saw the on-time train. Right, because everyone else heard the gunshot and looked at the clock and looked at a clock inside the house and identified the wrong time. Right. So Mr. Satterthwaite doesn't really have standing to pursue this, but Mr. Quinn convinces him to explain all this to Sylvia Dale, Wilde's real love. And she's a bit of a dim bulb herself, but she has a father and a brother. So Mr. Satterthwaite only goes to her thinking that she will then go to her father and or brother to help her since Mr. Satterthwaite thinks so little of her intelligence. But Sylvia has other plans. She straight up goes directly to Sir George, tells him that the police know everything, and convinces him to sign a confession. She basically goes full Kira Sedgwick in The Closer. But you didn't mean to kill him, did you? You hadn't planned on that. Just for the record, though, just so it's clear that it wasn't on purpose, could you please say that out loud? He just goes into a blind panic. I didn't. Mean to kill him. And Sylvia subsequently explains all this to Mr. Quinn by saying that she had always been aware that Sir George was rather stupid, just like she was. She even says that he is a little stupid, you know, said Sylvia Dale. So am I, she added as an afterthought. That's why I know how stupid people behave. We get rattled, you know, and then we do the wrong thing and are sorry afterwards. <laughs> okay. I mean, it's, 
it's also like a weird level of self-awareness to have if you're actually stupid. That level of self-awareness would be, to me, an indication that you are not, in fact, all that stupid. And perhaps that is what we should ultimately take um, away from take, Sylvia. Take away from Sylvia. Yes, uh, she is merely modest. Right. Although, she, I mean, honestly, the guy murdered his wife at point blank range. Like, I have to say that the stupidest thing she does in this is go in there by herself. The only thing that happens here after all of that uh, excitement is that Mr. Satterthwaite takes Sylvia to a fancy lunch at, of course, Arlecchino. But sadly, guess who's not there anymore? Guess who has vanished? Vanished with the wind, Mr. Harley Quinn. Mr. Harley Quinn. Was he even there at all? It's a good question, right? There really is a version of these stories in which it's a Fight Club twist, and absolutely, it's, no, that's it's exactly just Mr. Satterthwaite, it. right? He's it's just Tyler Mr. Durden. Satterthwaite talking to himself. He's Tyler Durden. I say never be complete. I say stop being perfect. I say look, let's evolve. Let the chips fall where they may. Harley Quinn is totally Tyler Durden. Sorry for people who have neither <laughs> Sorry, read nor seen Fight Club. <laughs> <laughs> neither read nor seen Fight Club, but you know, I feel like it was almost 20 years ago, so you know, the window of spoilers has closed on that front. There is though, by the way, there is a little clue as to Harley Quinn's identity or substance uh, in the middle of the story where um, Mr. Satterthwaite makes mention of the last time that they met. Which, uh, which on was, Midsummer's Eve. And he says on Midsummer's Eve, and Christy writes, Mr. Satterthwaite was startled as though the words held a clue that he did not quite understand. Was it Midsummer's Eve? He asked confusedly. Yes, but let us not dwell on that. It is unimportant, is it not? Mm. Since you say so, said Mr. Satterthwaite courteously, he felt that elusive clue slipping through his fingers. You know, <laughs> all sorts of sprites and spirits and uh, things that go bump in the night seem to show up on Midsummer Night's Eve, don't they? Right. And also, you know, this story involves Friday the 13th. It absolutely does, which actually reminds me of two points I wanted to make before we close. The first has to do with superstition in Christie. And we talk about this all the time, how superstition is never a part of a solution for a puzzle mystery. But Christie does love to make use of superstition or people's belief in superstition, sometimes within the course of these puzzle mysteries. And I think we have such a good example of that here because the maid, Louisa, is superstitious and and both supernatural elements that she mentions here, the sign in the sky, this cloud coming out of the train, and the fact that it was Friday the 13th, are key to solving the puzzle mystery in a very rational, non-superstitious way. And the juxtaposition of superstition with rationality is just so Christy, and I think this is just a prime example of that. For what is a rather slight and somewhat silly miniature puzzle mystery, I think we should give it its due on that front. The other point I wanted to bring up, Catherine, you mentioned that there was a plot hole here in the solution to the puzzle mystery. And that has to do with the fact that, of course, people inside the house could have been wearing wristwatches or pocket watches, I suppose. But at this point, more people would probably be wearing a wristwatch as opposed to a pocket watch. And they, of course, would have kept time themselves. So that is an issue. Perhaps we were more attuned to it because that exact point happened to come up in the Suchet adaptation of the dream that we covered last week. But that is a nit to pick with this puzzle mystery. But yeah, as to the identity of one Harley Quinn, yeah, it's either like a Spencerian sprite 
Light from the pages of Fairy Queen or Tyler Durden in Fight Club. I tend to think it's Tyler Durden. Things you own end up owning you. But do what you like, man. That makes <laughs> um, Mr. Quinn's motivation, well, and Mr. Satterthwaite's motivations a little scarier. We're heading to an interesting place in these Mr. Quinn stories, so I, I can't wait to get there in the later stories. We shall see. And, you know, for lovers of stained glass. We have so much more ahead. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, that is the sign in the sky. We are very excited for next week because we will be covering our next novel, One, Two, Buckle My Shoe. Catherine is going to be working through her really severe... Fear of dentists fear of dentists. This is, we're actually really not joking about that. That is real. It might be a little touch and go. I might be just traumatized. You guys might never hear from me again after one, two, buckle my shoe. I don't know. This might be the final Agatha Christie novel. So next time, one, two, buckle my shoe. And in the meantime, we would love to hear from you. Email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at allaboutthedame. Find Catherine at Brobcat. Send her nice messages uh, about how she shouldn't be afraid of the dentist. Find us on Facebook or Facebook pages, All About Agatha. And our Instagram handle is at allaboutagatha. And we would really appreciate it if you took a moment to rate and review us. It really helps out the podcast. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.